0: Good, good, good. Leah, good to see you again this morning. If you're on Zoom land, welcome. Glad to have you. Uh, Michelle, thank you for uh, sharing this morning. You kind of preached the sermon before we preached the sermon, so I love how the Lord does that. So we've, we've been in the study love like that. Today we're going to talk about loving in a bold way, um, and that's probably not going to mean what you think it means as we get to the end. And I'm excited about today, but here's the big idea. Here's what I want us to take home today is that truthfulness is at the center of a more loving life. It's what makes us authentic. So when we talk about loving boldly today, that's where we're headed is talking about truthfulness and authenticity. Have you ever been less than authentic? You know what I mean? Like not quite the truth teller that you thought you were. I, I hate to admit it, but there have been times in my life where I have been less than authentic. And I think the same is probably true for you. And, and you know the kind of things I'm talking about, like maybe you aren't completely forthcoming about something, other people find out, and then you have to go through that awkward conversation to kind of getting the details back aligned the way they're supposed to be. When you go through a situation like that, it, it damages the relationship, right? And if we're going to be a people that loves like Jesus, relationships have to be important for us, right? We see that that's how Jesus does ministry. That's how he relates to us is through our relationship with him. And we've talked about this before in Colossians. It says that Christ in us is the hope of glory. It's the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to the world is through us. And if that's the case, loving like Jesus couldn't be any more important, right? And so as we're thinking about loving in a bold way, being truthful and authentic is an important part of that. Even though sometimes when we're not authentic, it damages the relationship, there's good news. When we address the situation, when we talk it out, when we go through those awkward moments, there's an opportunity for healing there, right? I want to share a story with you. Many years ago, um, I was part of a group that went to a farmer's market every Saturday morning, and I had made a commitment that I would be there every Saturday morning, and I sold grass-fed beef, and I sold pastured chickens, and it was a lot of fun, and I enjoyed the people who were there, but you know how life gets sometimes, right? You have a really busy, hectic week, and, and I was working every Saturday morning at this farmer's market, and I had sold a lot of my stock that week because a lot of people were looking for it throughout the week, not just on the weekends, and so Friday night comes around, and I'm just not feeling it. You ever been there where you know you got something Saturday morning, and you're just not feeling it? So I sent a text message to the guy that was managing the farmer's market. I was like, hey, man, look, I sold a lot of my stock this week. I'm not going to make it tomorrow. Well, he very quickly and very accurately described how he felt about being bailing at the last minute. And it made me mad. Like I was, I, was, I would say furious at his response to me. How dare he? He doesn't know my life. He doesn't know what's going on. But the more I thought about that evening, as I began to kind of cool down, I realized that I was the one really that had made the mistake. I had made a commitment, and I wasn't going to follow through with it. So Saturday morning comes, and I get up early, and I go to the farmer's market. But rather than just showing up and avoiding it, I went directly to this guy, and I said, look, man, I've made a mistake. Here's what I did. But also, I want to talk about how you responded to me, because that wasn't okay either. And we had a really vulnerable, authentic relationship. And you know what happened in our relationship? It, like, jumped to a new level. I don't know if you've ever seen the Key and Peele sketch, a whole nother level, If you hadn't seen that, it's really funny. But anyway, our relationship went to a new level because we both got really vulnerable. And I shared what was going on in my week, and he shared with me the pressure that he was getting from his management to make sure that the vendors were there when they said they would be there. But if we didn't have the conversation, then nothing would have changed. Authenticity grows as we become truth tellers, as we begin to tell the whole story. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We've been talking about loving like Jesus and what that means and how to do it. That's been our goal. I've said each week, and it's still true, I want to love like Jesus, and you do too. That's all of our goals. And as I've mentioned each week, whether you're part of a church or whether this is just something that we're doing here, there's something inside of all of us that wants our relationships to be better. It doesn't matter if it's a friend, if it's a coworker, if it's a family member, if it's a significant other. None of us are ever satisfied because we know things can just always get better, right? If you've been married for any length of time, you can probably look at the beginning of your marriage and think, because this is where I am all the time, is I think back to when Bethany and I first got married, and I thought, in that moment, I thought, life can't get any better than this. And now here we are 18, 19 years later, and I look back and be like, I had no idea how much I was going to love this woman as I do now, Right? And that happens as we live life together. I see some people grinning and looking at each other, husbands and wives, that means you know it too. We're in a series called Love Like That. Each week we've emphasized what we already know. None of us have arrived, right? All of us have room for improvement. We're all trying to figure it out. We're trying to get it right, largely because the stakes are so high. That's what I was talking about a while ago. This is the most important thing as believers that we need to understand is how to love. The way Jesus did because our goal is to be like him right and that's not just with the people that deserve it right but even the people who we feel like don't deserve it and we talked about that last week our theme passage for this series is Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 2 through 2 let's read this again this is out of the message translation it says watch what God does and then you do it like children who learn proper behavior from their parents Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. I love that last line. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Loving like Jesus involves being mindful and observant. It means being approachable. It means being graceful. And today we're going to see that it means being boldly truthful. This may seem like a no-brainer, but it's not. Let's, let's start today by talking about the truth about truth, okay? Truth is sometimes trumped, if you will, by groupthink. Do you know what that is? It's the mob mentality or herd mentality that throws truth out the window in place of sounding, of sound thinking, truth and doing the right thing, even when it goes against conventional thinking, right? We've seen that happen before, mom mentality, where rather than following truth, people follow an idea that's touted as truth. Let's look at an example from scripture of that, okay? As we look at that, I want you to just, here's a quick definition. Groupthink describes how people are influenced by their peers to adopt certain behaviors that may or may not be grounded in truth. So here's an example of that, Luke chapter 23, verses 13 through 25. Here we are approaching the crucifixion of Christ. This is Palm Sunday, and this is something that happened just after Palm Sunday. But Luke 23, verses 13 through 25, it says, Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people. And he said to them, you have brought this man as one who misleads people, but in fact, after examining him in your presence, I found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then released. Okay, pause. Pilate is revealing the truth. The truth is that Jesus had done nothing wrong. Pilate already told them that. They didn't like what Pilate had to say, so they took him to Herod. Herod examined him, says he's done nothing wrong, sends him back to Pilate for a second time. Pilate stands before the crowds and says Jesus has done nothing wrong but look what they said then they all cried together take this man away release Barabbas to us he had been thrown into prison for rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder wanting to release Jesus Pilate addressed him again but they kept shouting crucify him crucify him A third time he said to them, why? What has this man done wrong? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him whipped and then released. But they kept up the pressure demanding with loud voices that he be crucified and their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and release the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. But he handed over Jesus to their will. The scribes and the chief priests were stirring up the crowd of the people until they could no longer hear the truth. They'd gotten caught up in that mob mentality. This is what we want, we want it now. Both Pilate and Herod found no guilt, but the scribes, the chief priests, and the crowd could not hear the truth. Many of us would categorize ourselves as non-conformers, right? Or non confronters excuse me. We avoid showdowns and confrontations at all costs. I've struggled with that a lot over my life. It's gotten better as I've gotten older, But especially when I was younger, I would run from confrontation. I didn't want any part of it. And even though Jesus demonstrates his love in countless tangible ways, he didn't run from a confrontation. Check out this confrontation that he made in the epicenter of people and activity at the temple grounds. This is in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 13. It says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables with money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Many sports enthusiasts will use the phrase, not in my house, when talking about the possibility of losing a home game or in their stadium. Y'all, this was... Geico commercial recently, I couldn't help but put it up there. Not in my house, okay? Or maybe you've said that to one of your children, or maybe a parent said this to you when you were a teenager, right? And, and they would say to you, not in my house as it relates to the behavior of you or your children. Has your parent ever said that to you? There's this sense of ownership, right? Like that this home is different and therefore operates differently. Jesus, who's God in the flesh, said the same thing when confronting the religious leaders and the merchants of the day, using the temple of God to make a quick buck or to promote their own agenda. Jesus states the truth. Not, not in my house. Smacked it out of there. Things are different here is what Jesus is saying. And we got to note that the temple was built according to his own design and his own order. It was dedicated to his worship where the glory of God rested upon the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Okay, think about it. This is Jesus' house. And he entered the temple through the eastern gate or through the king's gate as it was called because he was the king reigning over his own kingdom. Entering the temple grounds, Jesus' first encounter was with the court of Gentiles. This was an area where the, of the temple grounds where Gentiles could come and to shop and to worship, but they were not allowed to go any further in. In the court of Gentiles, the Jews had set up a marketplace, a mall if you will, where sacrificial animals and offerings could be purchased, usually at an inflated price, right? It's like when you go to Disney World, now a Coke's $12 instead of two like it is everywhere else in the world, that kind of thing. During this celebration, Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, foreigners would travel to Jerusalem to worship and sacrifice. And they wouldn't bring sacrificial animals with them on their long journey, but they would just buy what they needed there. But these merchants with the help and the approval of the religious leaders, would charge much more for the animals. And if they had foreign currency, well, there was an exchange rate for that too. And, Les points this out in the book, that a lot of times they would sell subpar animals, animals that had blemishes. So they'd buy these animals, they'd pay the exchange rate, they'd bring it in to make the sacrifice, and the religious leaders would reject it because it was blemished, and they'd have to go right back out there and spend more money. That's why Jesus was so upset. He says, This is supposed to be a a place of prayer, and you've turned it into a robber's den. If you look at everything that went on in the temple, there's more activities than simply prayer. We know that there were many sacrifices that were offered. We know there was music. We know that teaching took place. But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, My house is a house of sacrifice, or My house is a house of music, or My house is a house of teaching. He says, My house is the house of prayer. Jesus speaks the truth, an unpopular truth, among the leaders and the merchants that were there. The temple was, first and foremost, a place where people went to gaze on the glory of God and to worship Him. Prayer is our act of devotion where we seek His face and behold His glory. That's why the temple was built. In Solomon's prayer, when he dedicated the temple, he used language that indicated that prayer was to be the central activity connected with this place of worship. And for Jesus, speaking the truth amongst, or for us, speaking the truth amongst a hostile crowd is never easy. It's not fun to tell a friend that his breath stinks, okay? You're kicking like Jet Li, is how we say it. Or it's not, it's awkward to say, hey, your fly's unzipped, right? Those things are not easy. But those things pale in comparison to lovingly telling a friend that he's ruining his marriage by his actions, or that a mother is forfeiting her parental responsibilities by not paying attention or not engaging with her kids. Jesus would often confront the hypocrisy and the legalism that he saw in the world around him. That kind of showmanship had to be called out with truth. This brings us to point number two, that there is a connection between truth and hypocrisy. Look at Matthew chapter 23. It says, you blind Pharisee. First wash the inside of the cup and and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus speaks pretty harshly about hypocrisy. In fact, he reserved his harshest Yet, truthful criticism for those who were hypocrites. If you're bothered by spiritual counterfeits, you got some good company there. We've talked about that before. Jesus lashed out at the hypocrites 20 different times in the Gospels. These are found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 2, 5, 16. Let's look at some of these. Verse 6, um, chapter 6, verse 2. When someone. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and the streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. Or Matthew 6, 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who pray publicly on street corners and in synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that's all the reward they will get. Or Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. For they try to look miserable and disheveled so that people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. Or Matthew 7, chapter 5, hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Or Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 8, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The most pointed, direct, and harshest words Jesus ever spoke were directed toward professional religious pretenders. In Matthew 23, he calls them hypocrites seven times, fools two times, blind guides five times, and serpents and brood of vipers. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 through 6. This is in the message translation. I love this paraphrase. It says, when you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. You've seen them in action, I'm sure, play actors, I call them, treating prayer meeting and street corner alike as a stage, acting compassionate as long as someone is watching, playing to the crowds, they get applause, true, but that's all they get. When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks. Just do it quietly and unobtrusively. That is the way your God, who conceived you in love, working behind the scenes, helps you out. And when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production either. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in a box seat? Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you, don't, so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense his grace. It's pretty hard to miss the point, right? You see, the, the proof of spiritual maturity is not external. It's not showmanship. And Jesus called them out anytime, any place that he saw that happening. Jesus was the ultimate truth teller. He's the model for living authentically and honestly. When a person only lets people see the pretty parts of their lives, it creates a false image of who they are. That kind of activity puts walls up and destroys authenticity because we aren't being honest about who we are and what's going on in our life. Point number three, what keeps us from being truth tellers? In a simple word, it's rejection. We're afraid people won't accept us. They won't attend to us. They won't approve of us. So we wear masks to protect ourselves from sitting in the sting of rejection and fear that people surround us. When I say mask, I'm not talking about a COVID mask. I'm talking about a Mask, mask, okay? We usually live with two circles representing our lives. One circle represents the person who wears a mask, who goes along with the crowd, who knows what is right but chooses not to do it. The other circle is the true representation of who we are. And the farther those circles separate from each other, the more tension and fear you're going to experience in your life. When what you, when, um, what you do and what you say do not match the person you are inside, When your truth is not revealed to others, you develop a fragmented self, and it makes life stressful. A few decades ago, there was a movement Uh, in this message when it was transcripted. It said a few years ago. I had to reword that. A few decades ago, there was a movement, including bracelets, that were called, what would Jesus do? Raise your hand if you remember the WWJD bracelets. All right, now, raise your hand if you wore one. All right, I'm in good company, okay? The theme was loosely taken from a book by Charles uh, Sheldon uh, called In His Steps. A small town was totally transformed by a small group of people who chose to live an entire year by making every decision in their home, their business, and their lives by first asking, what would Jesus do? And it changed the town because it changed their hearts, and then it changed their lives. Inside first, outside later. Observe Jesus what he did when speaking the truth. He didn't back down from Simon the Pharisee when Simon attempted to embarrass him and paint him in the corner by being a heretic. That's what we talked about last week. He lovingly confronts the woman at the well regarding her many relationships. He confronted his friends as well, like Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. Don't misunderstand what we're trying to say here today. You can be truthful and cause damage, and that's not what we're wanting to do. Jesus wasn't the guy who just loved to hurt people. No, truth is, was always set in the context of grace. That's what we're talking about. And this wasn't just something Jesus did if he had the time. It was a priority. Be truthful. Don't be mean or rude. Be truthful. Be genuine and authentic. Take off the mask and be real. Isn't that what this generation, maybe all generations long for, is to be known? I love that Michelle shared this morning. She had a horrible week but she knew if she came Wednesday night that the people that were there were going to accept her and love her. What a testimony for our church and for what God's doing in our lives. Remember the encounter that um, Jesus has with Philip's brother? Look at John chapter 1. I had kind of forgotten about this, and this was a good reminder because it speaks to the value of being authentic. This John chapter 1, verse 43 through 48 says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Come, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Look at Nathanael's response. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. As they approached, Jesus said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me, Nathanael asked. And Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Now while Nathanael wasn't very kind, he spoke what he felt. Jesus honors and respects integrity and authenticity. Here is truly a son of Israel in whom no deceit is found. What Jesus was acknowledging is that Nathanael was honest about what he felt. I'm not saying we need to go and be that blunt, right? That wasn't very graceful. But there's value in being honest about what you think. Jesus himself lived in a way that was transparent, straightforward, and direct. And he wants us to follow in the same way. He commends Nathanael, in fact. Jesus commended him for his integrity here truly is an Israelite. Not all Israelites would live up to that name, but Nathanael did. He was a Jew inwardly as well as outwardly, for there was nothing false or insincere about him. I I was, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about Talitha, and I'll call and tell her I said this, okay? But one of the things that I love about Talitha is you do not have to wonder what she is thinking. She will tell you, okay? And she does it in a very loving way. Have you ever been fussed at and you didn't know it until it was over? If you haven't, just have more conversations with Talitha. It'll happen. But she speaks what she's thinking, and she says it in a very authentic way, and you know it's from her heart, even if it's hard to hear. That's what we're talking about. And Jesus, when he's referencing Nathaniel, he's referencing Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2. He's quoting it. It says, how joyful is one of those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity, and whose spirit in his spirit has no deceit. That's what Jesus is saying about Nathanael. Even though what Nathanael said wasn't nice, he was honest. And there's value in that. Not only does a life marked by truth telling open us up to the richness of our spiritual relationship with God, but it empowers us to live meaningfully and lovingly with each other. There's value in our authenticity. There's value in speaking the truth in a loving way. So now what? What do we do with all this? We fear that being known is going to lead to rejection. But it's only by being known that our hearts are ever truly revealed and loved. Authenticity separates being a loving person from merely wanting to be seen as a loving person. Right? And we've felt that difference before. Right? Les Parrott talks about, in the book, he makes a comment about don't just be the kind of person who says, Yeah, I'll pray for you. Actually, be a person who prays for people when you say that be authentic, or if someone's telling you their struggle and you know you're not going to pray, don't say, I'll pray for you. Be honest. Authenticity is all about being rather than doing. When you give attention to truth-telling from a loving heart, your actions are naturally going to follow. When we let Jesus make this change in our heart eternally, internally, external is going to change with it. Love is dangerous because love means risking rejection, right? Jesus fearlessly risked not only his reputation, but his very life for the truth. This uncompromising quality can leave some uncomfortable, right? No doubt about that. But that discomfort just may be the most loving thing that we can do for them. So, first thing, first real application thing that we can do is get real and be authentic. When we get real with others... We show who we really are. And I'm not talking about real like reality TV. I don't know if that's even a thing anymore. It used to be really popular. You ever thought about how dumb that phrase is, reality TV? There ain't nothing real about what's going on. Every bit of it's scripted, right? And it's easy to laugh at that, but we're not being authentic. We're living life just like those reality shows. We're doing and saying what we think people want to hear instead of doing and saying what they need to hear or doing and saying what we need to say. Let's imagine for a moment that those cameras for reality TV have been rolling on you this past week at your house. Only this time the cameras are hidden. You don't know that they're there and you're being watched. What can you learn about yourself as you watch real life behind closed doors? What does that speak about you as a person? Are you actually the person that you say you are behind closed doors? Or do you act differently? Is your life fragmented? We're talking about authenticity. I want you to consider these things. What does an authentic Christian living look like out in the community? Does it really have to affect your life out on the street? If it's real, it does. If you're really being an authentic person in your private life, it's going to affect the rest of your life too. How does an authentic Christian act at the customer service desk when you're not getting the service you think you ought to get? How does an authentic Christian act when you're at lunch after church and the waiter or waitress is not being as attentive or they get your order wrong? What does that look like? An authentic Christian doesn't try to compartmentalize his life work or his work life from his Christian life. You can't segregate your private life from your church life. Jesus Christ wants to be involved in every single part of your life. Authentic Christians understand that. And I'm telling you that your relationship with Jesus Christ, if it's real will affect every single aspect of your existence. Jesus is interested in everything about us, every problem, every concern. He knows how to make a difference in your work, in your marriage, in your family, and in your personal life. And living an authentic Christian life will affect everything from how you do business to how you relate with customers, to how you treat your competitors, to how you treat your waitress at lunch today. Loving like Jesus affects everything. second thing we can do is get vulnerable. Open up yourself to those who trust, who you trust. Be like Michelle. Be honest about what's going on in your life. A few months ago in one of our life groups, somebody in the life group opened up about their struggle with mental health. And I want to share with you guys, I'm not going to tell who the person was or what they shared, but as that person shared, the atmosphere in the room completely changed. And other people in the room were able to open up and share what they were struggling with as well. When we get real and authentic and vulnerable, it allows others to see that it's, one, safe to do, but also that they're not alone. You begin to realize that you're not alone. We begin to realize that all of our lives are a little bit messed up, right? Because that's the reality. We walk around with a mask on pretending like everything's perfect, but nobody's life is. And so if we'll just get vulnerable with one another, with people that we trust, It's going to open up areas of our lives where people can speak truth and life into our lives. And they can help us with what we're struggling with. If you're getting vulnerable, uh, don't speak to it from a self-centered heart. That position will always be be more concerned with getting and promoting rather than giving. When we separate love from truth-telling, we're trading genuineness for approval. And this creates false and fleeting connections at best. But when we risk rejection and get real, we begin to move and to love more like Jesus. I don't know about you, but this idea of boldness is different than I thought it was when I first started this chapter. It's not about being brash or harsh or hard-hitting. It's about being loving. It's about being gentle. It's about being kind. Kind enough to say things that are difficult. The third thing is we can get used to life this way. Today in the kids' time, we heard about Jesus making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday, right? And I want to show you an example today to kind of close us out of Jesus being real and authentic in the moment, okay? Bethany shared a TikTok with me this week where another pastor is talking about the triumphal entry, and she pointed out some things that I didn't notice before. Okay, We've, we know what a triumphal entry is if we take it out of the context of Jesus coming in on a cult. We know what that looks like, right? Raise your hand if you've ever seen Aladdin. Okay, that's when, when Prince Ali comes in, and I really love the Will Smith version. If you're not a fan, I'm sorry. You just got to separate it from the Robin Williams versions. They're both good in their own right. But I love in the, in the Will Smith version that grand entry coming in. When we think triumphal entry, That's what we imagine, right? And those were reserved. Think about who's occupying Jerusalem. Who's in charge? The Romans, right? The Romans knew how to make a triumphal entry. They'd come in on these huge war horses with the army behind them, and they usually did that when they were coming back from a victorious battle. And there was a huge celebration. People throwing confetti in the streets. I mean, it was a big deal. Okay, and so when Scripture, when we hear this story on Palm Sunday of Jesus making his triumphal entry, is he on a war horse? No, he's on a baby horse, right? One that's never been ridden before, all right? And people aren't throwing confetti and there's not this huge army. It's just all of his followers. He's poking fun at what people believed power looked like, right? We hear all the time about people saying that, that when they were looking, when the Jews were looking for a savior, they were looking for a conquering king on a big war horse. That's what they're expecting to see. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not that kind of king. I'm opposite of that. And so when he makes his triumphal entry, he's speaking truth into the world about who he is. And it's not what people were expecting. It's not what they wanted. It's what they needed. You see, when When we take the opportunity to be real and to be authentic, it changes the world around us. Jesus is communicating to the people in Jerusalem, this is what a king looks like. And I find it interesting too that the Pharisees are telling him to to rebuke his disciples. And for a while I thought that that was, for a long time I thought that they were doing that because they didn't like what the disciples were doing. I don't think that's the case. I think they were telling him to rebuke the disciples because they were scared of the Romans. They're thinking the Romans are going to see this guy coming in and they're throwing the celebration for the king of the Jews coming in and it's about to be bad for us because they were given by the Romans a certain amount of power and they were afraid of that power being taken away. Jesus coming in, being himself, doing what God was calling him to do, changed the world around him. And let's get real, real for a minute, okay? The disciples obviously had gotten used to Jesus doing bold things in loving ways. When they were told to go get a colt, the cowboy in me is going. Wait, hold on, time out. First of all, if that colt is tied up, that's probably. I don't know if you ever seen a horse or an animal get haltered for the first time, kids. What do they do? They go crazy, right? And so here's this colt who'd never been ridden, and Jesus is like, hey, go get that colt. I'm going to ride it. Do what? Okay, also I just want to point out they showed Jesus riding side saddle in that video. I don't think that's how it went down, just saying. The last point was we need to get used to living life this way. The disciples had gotten used to seeing Jesus do things differently than everybody else did. We need to get used to living in a way that's different than culture around us. I want to go back to Ephesians 5. I pointed this out as we started and I want to close on this thought again today. Ephesians 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, at the end of 2, it says that his love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Church, if we're going to be a, a people that loves like Jesus, it means we've got to be willing to take the risk and to speak truth into people's lives, even though it's difficult. Do it lovingly, do it gently, but do it and get used to that being the new normal. We want to love like that. Let's pray. Jesus, I've been challenged a lot this week by the message of being bold. Father, as we get ready to celebrate Easter, to celebrate who you are and what you've done for us, God, I ask that you give us opportunities this week to be bold that when the normal conversations about Easter come up, that we could break past the surface stuff that people always talk about with Easter, that you give us opportunities to speak truth and the life into people about who you really are. God, if there's areas in my life or areas in all of our lives where we need to, to take off a mask and be vulnerably be real, God, I ask that you'd reveal those things to us this week. Don't let us just slide past this message. God, let it get into our hearts and change who we are. Reveal those areas to us. Father, we love you. And I'm so thankful that that we get to do this together. God, speak to us this week. In your name we ask.